From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, veteran TV comedy writer Ken Levine. Ken wrote on some of the biggest sitcoms of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, including The Jeffersons, M.A.S.H., The Tracy Ullman Show, Wings, The Simpsons, Frasier, and Cheers. And remember, this is an era where tens of millions of people were watching every week, unlike the fractured audiences we have today. When we had Ed Solomon on the podcast recently, he told a story about how his first boss welcomed him onto Laverne and Shirley by saying that more people would see his episode than saw all of Shakespeare's plays over the last 400 years. The final episode of MASH, of course, was watched by 125 million people. Now, along with a couple others like All in the Family and The Mary Tyler Moore Show, the series that Ken wrote for revolutionized TV. Suddenly smart, ironic shows were getting mass audiences. They were sophisticated without being pretentious. Cheers, which is my favorite comedy of all time, has some of the funniest, most character-based, most intelligent storylines on TV, far above any dramas of the time. The characters are funny and flawed and loyal to each other, and the fun of the show is just getting to spend time with them. You eagerly welcome them into your living room. All of Ken's shows stood out from the majority of sitcoms of the time, which were set up, punchline, set up, punchline. Instead, on the shows that Ken worked for, the humor came from the character's flaws and therefore felt very human and relatable. Amy Poehler calls Cheers the best TV show that's ever been. Mike Schur calls it the best sitcom ever made. When New York Magazine interviewed a dozen top TV showrunners asking them which show made them most want to get into television, the majority cited Cheers. Ken Levine wrote 36 episodes of that show. Can't wait to talk to him. Here he is, Ken Levine. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out screencraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. I want to ask you, I looked you up on IMDb, and your first writing credit was on The Jeffersons, which was a yes. giant show. So how'd you, how'd you start off on such a big hit like that? Well, um, very fortunate. Um, my partner and I, David Isaacs, were writing spec scripts at night and uh, doing our best to let them be seen. We wrote a spec Mary Tyler Moore show, which was rejected by The Mary Tyler Moore Show, we wrote a spec Rhoda that was rejected twice by Rhoda to different producers. And then uh, my mom was playing golf one day with Gordon Mitchell, who was one of the story editors of this new show called The Jeffersons. I the love Jefferson. this already. It <laughs> had just come on CBS. It started as a mid-season show, and this was going to be it was renewed for the season so this was going to be its first full season and um, so my mother said oh my son is a great writer and of course he's thinking like oh my god of course bad enough i have to play with a woman uh, <laughs> and uh, but he said 
uh, all right, have him send me a script, and if I like the script, I'll have them come in and, and pitch stories for the Jeffersons. And so I did. I sent him our Mary Tyler Moore show, and they really liked it and invited us to come in and pitch story ideas for the Jeffersons, and they bought one of them, and that was really how we, how we began. But ironically, when we wrote the script, we had two weeks to write the script, which is more than enough time. But David and I had both met in an Army Reserve unit. We were both in the same Army hmm. Reserve unit. So that two-week period, as luck would have it, was our two-week on-duty summer camp at Fort Ord. Oh, wow. So it's it's not like jury duty where you can say, you know, this isn't a convenient time for me. Uh, push it to December. No, you you go. And um, so we had to write the script at night in the barracks. Wow. That's that's, that's how we wrote our first script that, and, that actually sold. And how did you um, watch previous episodes of The Jeffersons in order to get a sense of the voices and the characters? Well, the like I said, it had premiered uh, mid-season. So there were like about six or seven episodes that had already aired, but that's really all we had. And, you know, back in those days, we're talking 1975. It's not like now where they would just say, um, here's DVDs of all the episodes, go home and watch them. You know, Um, no, you know, we had to be in front of the television set, uh, you know, Saturday nights at eight 30, when the Jeffersons air. That's such a hard way to get the voices in your head, and especially, I assume, on your reserve duty here, you don't have a TV, you're not able to just watch them over and over again. No, exactly. No, you know, and we're sitting on the bunk, you know, writing, you know, Wheezy, come over here! (laughs) While everyone else is off in the corner, you know, uh, playing poker and smoking dope and listening to Jimi Hendrix, and, you know, here we are, you know, that's huddled together in a uh, you know in a bunk bed uh, writing the Jeffersons. That's totally wild. And so this was back at a time in in what the late '70s when uh, most of the scripts came from freelancers, not from yes. writing staff, yeah. right? Yeah. Back in those days, there were very small writing staffs, and the um, the bulk of the scripts would come from freelance. Writers. In fact, when we went to the Jeffersons, they told us the ground rules were that we could come in with three ideas because they had like another 15, 20 freelance writers who they had invited to come in and pitch. So we pitched, originally, we pitched three ideas and they liked one and sent it up to the producers and the producers didn't respond to it. But they said, you know, we like your ideas, so come back with three more. And we came back with three more, and that time uh, it was a charm. That wow. time they bought it. So, yay. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And then your, uh, so your first script, your first, was that your first, um, you know, you said you had written these spec episodes um, of Mary Tyler Moore and a couple other things, but this was your first produced work, right? You hadn't yes. written any plays. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Right. No. 
And a yeah. massive audience. I mean, the Jeffersons, you know, we had Ed Solomon on the podcast not long ago, and he said, uh, you know, when he started writing for Laverne and Shirley, his boss welcomed him to the show by saying, more people will watch your episode than have watched all of Shakespeare over the last 400 years. Um, yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> it must yeah, have been, that, I mean... That's true, especially back in those days. Right. You know, in those days, uh, it was routine to get 25, 30 million people <laughs> right. to watch your show. Now, it's, it's 30 million people is the Academy Awards. Right. Um, so did you have a party to watch your episode of the Jeffersons? You know, we did. We did. And I'll be very honest with you. <laughs> okay. they, did, they did a lot of rewriting. Sure. And, um, and I thought they made the script much worse. Yeah. And it was very odd because we had this viewing party with all of our friends. At the time, we didn't know we would ever get another assignment anywhere. Um, but, you know, you're watching the show and, you know, and all your friends are trying to be supportive, but they're going, oh, God, um, gee, this, oh, this isn't funny. So, you know, Dave and I are sitting there trying to do savers, <laughs> you know, um, so that's an awkward situation. Yeah, it was. It was an awkward situation. Yeah. Um, I want to jump forward to Cheers, which is certainly one of my all-time favorite shows. Um, Mine too. Yeah. What was the writing staff like on that show? Well, again, uh, very small. The first year of Cheers, the writing staff was Glenn and Les Charles, and me and David. Are you kidding me? That's, that's it. The creators no, and you guys. Wow. That's it. Just the four of us. We had a consultant uh, when we began production each week. We had a table reading where the cast sat around a table and read the script out loud. And we had uh, a consultant, a writer who we brought in named Jerry Belson, who helped us rewrite the script that day. And then the next day, as part of the process, when the show is on its feet and we have a run-through, then we do a, a big rewrite night, and we had David Lloyd come on mm -hmm. and and help out. But otherwise, no, it was just me and David. And how and soon we used a lot of freelance yeah. writers. And um, the pilot of Cheers, you know, is is one of the all time great pilots. How soon after the pilot did you come on board? Were you were you guys hired? Um, you know, as soon as the show got a pickup, or what? We actually were approached before the pilot. Okay. Yeah. Um, when it was just an idea. We, yeah. In fact, the original draft that that I have somewhere mm -hmm. um, before Teddy was hired mm -hmm. uh, is that Sam is a, a former football player of hmm. the Patriots. But when um, Ted Danson came in and he was so good um, – but no one would believe him as a football player, right. so it was it was changed to baseball. Right. Um, so we were there. We were there for the the pilot, um, just helping out, um, and then then the show got picked up, um, and we were there from you know from day one. Right. And it's a rare show where the creators, of course, the Charles brothers who wrote it, but their co-creator is James Bros, who is the director. You rarely see that these days where a director has a created by credit. Um was Bros just as involved in the creation of the characters and the setting as the Charles brothers? Honestly, no. Okay. Um I mean, look, 
you you can't underestimate the importance uh, of of Jim Burroughs mm-hmm. to the process, and it's one thing to sit around and try to visualize how it's going to look, and it's another to actually put it on film right. and to actually realize the vision. And in terms of TV comedy directors, there's nobody that's even in Jimmy's League. And uh, the the look of the show, the tone, yeah. um, everything about Cheers and, uh, uh, you know, how well it came to life and the performances of the actors. Yeah. Uh, that's all Jimmy. So Interesting. although Jimmy was not in the room while we were breaking stories and that sort of thing, uh, you know, Jimmy's contribution to um, to the success of Cheers um, just cannot be understated. Right. And while the Charles... Overstated. Right, right. Can't be overstated. No, the look and the feel of it, and you see the same thing in his later work with Friends and Will and Grace. It has that same sort of inviting, um, the camaraderie of the characters, the inviting tone and feel of the show. Um, Whereas with the Charles brothers, I guess they had decided after Cheers, that was sort of it for them, right? They didn't, uh, they didn't create any shows after Cheers, did they? No, they didn't create any shows after Cheers. They they wrote a couple of screenplays, and uh, there was one. God, I keep forgetting the the title. I had tin in the title. Yeah, and it was pushing about, tin. Like, air, pushing tin. Yeah, and uh, like and it movie. got rewritten. Yeah, um, a, a lot, and they were unhappy with the rewrite. Oh, and so I think they figured, you know, yeah. you know, I mean, they were at a point when. You know, they don't need to have other people <laughs> rewrite their works. Yeah, if you create cheers, you can sort of walk off into the sunset. Um, yeah. So, were you around? Being, I, I didn't realize that you were around from day one on Cheers. That's so great. Were you? Um, uh, tell me about the title sequence, which is so incredibly famous, um, with the song playing over the, those old black and white images. Do you remember yeah, how that came it about? It was done. It was done by uh, a couple of guys, um, Castle and Bryant. Um, Jim Castle and I, God, I forget Brian's first name, um, but they had this this vision, and the the title sequence visually did not change quite a bit, um, but the song did. <laughs> that there were like a you know number of a number of songs. Um, even Gary Portnoy, who ended up Gary Portnoy and Judy Hart Angelo, uh, who wrote the the famous Cheers theme, had written something else, and the, the Charles Brothers didn't really like it. And um, when they finally landed on on this one, um, and boy, God bless Gary Portnoy. Um, he said, I won't sell it to you unless you let me sing it. Hmm. He sang the demo, and everybody loved the demo. And so, you know, they were, the thought was, all right, you know, now let's go out and get Kenny Loggins or something. Right. And, um, and he said, no, I, I want to be the one singing it. Hmm. 
And I mean, it's so uh, it's such an inextricably extraordinary um, part of the show. Um, you, you know, you can't separate that that theme from from the show because so many of the themes of the show the the loyalty among the characters, the um, like we we're talking about before, the comfortability of the bar um, is all encapsulated in that theme song. Um, yeah, I mean, so it, to me, it's a shame that there are no more theme songs. Yeah, anymore uh, because uh, a really good theme song and opening title sequence just kind of gets you into the mood yeah. for the show. And I don't think anybody watching MASH or right. watching Cheers is so impatient that they're going, oh, God, come on already. Right. <laughs> no, I have like a Pavlovian response when I hear that, that Cheers theme, that I'm, I know what's coming, I'm excited for it, bring it on. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. It's something welcomed and um, and inviting. Yeah, so I, I agree. But networks now, oh, it's got to be ten seconds. You're going to lose the audience, right? If you right. if you have opening titles. Um, now the conceit of the show is, of course, very simple. It's just regulars at a bar. Um, today, so many shows are are super high concept, like The Good Place or Last Man on Earth, where a lot of screen time has to be devoted to a very complicated, sometimes convoluted plot. Do you think that the sort of the very simple premise of Cheers was helpful uh, with its longevity? Or did it sometimes, I guess I'm curious, did it sometimes make it tricky to write, to have to come up with story? Um, well, uh, see, I like the simplicity uh, uh, because to me, the best shows are about characters and uh, Cheers was pretty much just a, a, a setting, but I like writing shows where the stars are the characters and their interaction and their relationships, right. not having to go through all kinds of hoops in order to satisfy plot requirements. Right. Um, so it's, for me, uh, it's it's the kind of comedy that I I prefer writing. Right, and it does feel incredibly character based. Um, you know, the Sam and Diane, the will they or won't they, was just so well done, and it's been mimicked by so many other shows since then. With you know Ross and Rachel or Jim and Pam, so many others. I guess was there a lot of discussion in the writers' room about how far to take Sam and Diane's romance in each episode or over each season? Was that carefully plotted? It wasn't carefully plotted. It was generally plotted. Um, the, the first year, which to me is the best, um, 
you know, there was a lot of sexual tension and we got a lot of mileage out of it. But at some point, it's diminishing returns because they're adults. You know, they're they're two people in their early 30s. And if you keep doing the sexual tension and kind of holding off on it and everything, it starts to to seem like junior high. Hmm. So we obviously wanted to get as much mileage as we could out of it, but we didn't want to drag it on to where it, it just didn't seem realistic. Right. And so I seem to recall that we figured for the end of season one, they'll finally declare their attraction to each other. Mm -hmm. And I was on the stage, obviously, that night when they filmed the episode and the famous scene when Sam and Diane uh, finally do kiss. Right. One of the great scenes of all time. Well, the audience went crazy. And I turned to my partner, David, and I said, I think we just peaked (laughs) because nothing we could ever do with these two is going to get that kind of reaction, sleeping together or getting engaged or, or whatever. I don't think anything is going to be as uh, impactful as that particular moment. So on the one hand, it was great. And on the other hand, you know, you're going, oh, Christ, now what do we do? Right. And you had them together for a bit, and then you had them break up, and you had a very sort sure. of stormy romance, but it was just so expertly done that it never felt false. It never felt like you could feel the writer's hand, you know, pulling them apart for the sake of, of ratings or longevity. It just felt like two people who kind of make no sense with each other because they're complete opposites struggling because they're so attracted to each other. Right. And the other thing that that I will say here is people, I, I don't think people appreciate how exceptional Shelley Long was. Hmm. And I, I say this because that Diane character, to me, was the hardest character in a, in a comedy to navigate because it would have been so easy to hate Diane. Right. You know, she's pretentious. She's arrogant. um, She's condescending. It would be so easy to hate her. And Shelley managed to walk a fine line where she was very true to all of those negative attributes but also found a way of being endearing and lovable and charming. And boy, that was a high wire act every single week. And, and Shelley pulled it off. You know, Sam was a very likable character, like right from the beginning. Everybody loves Sam. All the confidence in the world. And um, he's funny and and charming. He cares for everybody and it's his bar and he's kind of the, you know, mother hen and, and all like that. But, you know, Diane, like I said, you you could just, you could so easily hate her. Yeah. And she walks right up to the line Shelley, of being insufferable. Yeah. And Shelley was 
so magnificent. And, uh, you know, when occasionally I will come across one of those first episode shows, I'm, I'm in awe of, uh, of how great Shelley is. And you know what? Ted will acknowledge that too. You know, if you ask Ted, he'll say the same thing. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, speaking of which, I want to play a clip from the first season. This is an episode you wrote. Um, I think it's episode six of the first season. Uh, it's called Any Friend of Dan's. And it's the last scene of the episode. Um, earlier on in the episode, Sam had gone off to a motel with Diane's college roommate, but he snuck out the window before sleeping with her because he found her so incredibly boring. Um, she was incredibly upset and feeling rejected. So she comes back to the bar. And in this scene, Diane brings her into Sam's office so that Sam can make her feel a little bit less rejected. Um, so I want to play the clip and then talk about it briefly. Rebecca, I, I might not have been totally fair with you. Uh, the reason I left was I'm, uh, well, I'm kind of seeing another person. Oh, I was afraid this was going to happen. You're making excuses to spare my feelings. Oh, no, 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 this is true. I, uh, I, I really am seeing somebody else. Please, Rebecca, you are a very desirable woman. He does happen to be going with somebody, that's all. Me. You? You? <laughs> you can tell it now, yes. Today, we had a tiff right before you came in, and, and uh, Sam used you to make me jealous, and... Then when push came to shove, he finally remembered what a wonderful thing that we have together. Isn't, isn't that right, sweetheart? Oh, yeah, sure. You betcha. <laughs> yes, Sam and I are, are deeply and passionately in love. <laughs> I can't believe it. Well, you do? I... It's incredible. I'd never have put you two together. Well, I, I know it does test the limits of human logic. <laughs> but, uh, like you, I, I was growing bored with bright, articulate men. You were, huh? Sure, I, I was looking for meat and potatoes, and, uh, <laughs> Sam here, the old sight of beef really fit the bill. You know, I was getting kind of bored with, uh, Beautiful, sexy, sensuous women. I decided to go for pleasant. <laughs> That's a great scene. Do you remember writing it at all? Uh, yes. And what I love about that scene is there are no jokes. There are no punchlines that all of the humor comes out of the characters and the situation. Um, and to me, it's like one of my all-time favorite Sam and Diane scenes because we know that they're attracted to each other and they're trying to deny it and yet they're playing the attraction and yet based on who they are, they are always trying to maintain the power position in the relationship. Right. And all of that is going on all of those dynamics are going on in what is seemingly a, a, a very simple scene. Right. 
Um, yeah, it's incredibly well acted. I, you know, the whole show is on Netflix now, so I seriously encourage anybody who who isn't familiar with the show or hasn't seen it in a while to go back and and watch it, especially that first season. Um, it was because of the comedies that are so popular today. It was a little jarring to hear the laugh track, um, or or just a, the studio audience. No, but, I don't know how but, much you use laugh that track. That was that was the real studio okay. audience. That really, re- in fact, you know, we were getting big laughs from the studio audience and people were accusing us of um, using the laugh machine. (laughs) And again, if you go back to Cheers, the first season, we were doing a little experimenting along the way, trying to totally find our voice. Right. But you'll notice probably around episode seven, eight, I, I don't know, we put that disclaimer that Cheers is filmed in front of a live studio oh, audience. Oh, right. A different actor would okay. read it every week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was in there specifically because we were saying, well, wait, no, these are the, the genuine laughs <laughs> right. from the audience. Right. You know, those those laughs were, were real. Um, and we wanted people to to understand that. Right. Do you think it could have, could you have written Cheers without a studio audience in the vein of 30 Rock or The Office? I don't think it nearly would have been as good. And the reason is, uh, I think, well, two things. Number one, I think the actors feed off the energy of the audience. And I think you get better performances by the actors. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is, in a multi-camera show, the writers are held accountable. The jokes have to work. If the jokes don't get laughs, then then you know it and and you have to to fix it when you're doing a single camera show and to me it's one of the reasons why so many of these niche shows have not found a broad audience is because other than a very small section of the population people don't find this stuff funny right um and and you're not held accountable so if you, as the showrunner, and five of your best friends find something funny, then you go with it. But, you know, we had 200 strangers every week sitting in bleachers. We had to make them laugh. And um, who, was the most, who was the most fun character to write on Cheers? Who would you be excited to, to write for every week? Um, I would say Frasier. How come? You know, we always kind of uh, we always kind of thought of him as, you know, the intellectual Daffy Duck. <laughs> you know um, that, like that 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 this was a guy because of Diane and being jilted by Diane. Um, you know, this was a guy who had just tons of rage issues and. Uh, you know, and, and here he is, the the psychiatrist, you know, trying to help everybody else when he himself was just a, a mass of neuroses. And Kelsey was so great at delivering lines that yeah. it was really, really a fun character to write. They all were fun, um, but he probably was was the most fun. And I loved writing Coach. Oh, yeah. I loved writing Coach. Was it easier yeah. to write for Coach than for Woody? No, um, not really. 
Um, I guess with the coach, it was just kind of fresher. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, Nick, Nick had this amazing delivery and this great sense where you figured he never saw the joke coming. And I have always maintained that in order to play dumb really well, you have to be really smart. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Judy Holiday um, had like a 180 IQ. <laughs> Gracie Allen had a 170 IQ. Um, it, you know, you know, Jennifer Tilly, who uh, plays, you know, the, the dumb, you know, gets bimbo, um, wins the World Series of Poker. Right. <laughs> you know, she's far from a dummy. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and that was the case with, with Nick. Uh, Nick, prior to Cheers, had an acting career, was also teaching acting, was in Raging Bull, right. and also was a very accomplished TV director. Oh, Lots I didn't of know episodes that. Yeah. of Hawaii Five O and Colombo and tons of our shows were directed by Nick Colasanto. Hmm. Um, were there any particular characters or dynamics among characters that were tricky to write? Well, obviously, Sam and Diane was kind of a fine dance. Yeah. Um, I, I guess. You know, Carla a little bit because, you know, you you wanted that character to be acerbic and to have zingers, but you just didn't want to make her one note. Right. Or you wanted to make sure that you understood that um, that the lines came out of frustration because of her situation right you know this townie with uh, a deadbeat ex-husband and all these kids um she had a a rough go of it yeah and and she also like you were talking before about diane being so pretentious that she sort of walks right up to the line of being insufferable but doesn't cross it carla with her acerbic wit i was watching an episode you wrote last night i can't remember if it was this one or another one but she makes a joke early on about uh hoping that her kids uh went out sailing like ordinary people where one of yeah, them would die. I, I know. I can't believe we got away with that joke. <laughs> that was a that was a dark joke. Hoping one of her children dies, um, uh-huh. but yet we still like Carla. We never feel you know alienated from her, even with her incredibly dark sense of humor. We wrote an episode that first season called "Truce or Consequences," where Sam tries to force Carla and Diane to be friends. Mm-hmm. And that, too, is one of my my favorite episodes. Yeah, I remember um, that episode. Yeah. Um, when Shelley Long left, were, were you on the show at that point? Yes. And did you think the show was over? No, I didn't think the show was over. Um, I I was a little apprehensive, like, like everybody, um, but no. You, no, I didn't think you thought it could survive over. without her. Would you have thought, what if Ted Danson had left? Would you have thought the show I could survive that? No, because it was his bar. Hmm. Yeah, it was his bar and it was his world. Right. You know, 
she was a character who came into the world. And so for her to leave, it's like, oh, okay. That's interesting. Look, sometimes adding new characters really sparks a show. Right. Which it did when you brought on Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. And I go back to MASH and uh, the introduction of Charles Emerson Winchester with David Stiers, Mm -hmm. uh, to me, really helped jumpstart that show because it creates new relationships and and a new chemistry right and so yes with rebecca um it was a a very different character right um so you mentioned uh earlier a few films that you've written uh you know with volunteers with tom hanks we had jack epps on the uh on the podcast recently and he talked about when he was writing turner and hooch um, Tom Hanks was incredibly helpful, wrote him a few memos in fleshing out his character and the dynamic between him and the dog a little bit more. Um, did you have that same experience with volunteers with him? No. Uh, well, no, we had a great experience with Tom Hanks, but it, it, it was very different. We wrote volunteers, the very first draft of it, like 1980. And at the time, Tom was doing Bosom Buddies. Right. And um, and our producer, Walter Parks, asked us, well, who do you think would be good for this? And, you know, we we're trying to come up with names. And we said, well, you know, this guy on Bosom Buddies, Tom Hanks, hmm. is, is pretty good. And we happened to be at the same agency as Tom at the time. And they slipped him a copy of the screenplay. And Tom loved it. And uh, at the time of course, no one is going to make a movie starring Tom Hanks. Right. So now you flash forward five years later, and Tom has done Bachelor Party, and then he did Splash, and Splash became a splash. And um, so now he's looking for new material, and agents are sending him every screenplay in town. And he's unhappy with the quality of the things. And he says to his agent, you know, there was a screenplay that I read years ago about a guy in the Peace Corps that I remember really loving. Whatever happened to that? And the agent said, well, I'll I'll try to find it. It's (laughs) like a needle in a haystack, but I'll try to find it. And again, you know, you talk about fortuitous situations. And this absolutely is a true story. That day, the, the, the project had gone from studio to studio and turnaround and picked up by another studio and one director was in and then he's out. And blah, blah. Now it's at uh, TriStar HBO. And again, we say, well, who would be good? And we all go, well, Tom Hanks would right. be good for this. And so um, they said, all right, let's approach him. It's like an hour after Tom had talked to his agent or manager, whichever one it was, that that part I don't exactly remember in terms of accuracy. He gets a call from our producer saying, hey, we have a script we'd like, Tom, to consider. It's called Volunteers. It's about a guy in the Peace Corps. And the the agent goes, oh, yeah, okay, yes, yeah, messenger to his house. And the agent calls Tom and goes, well, okay, I found it. I dug it up. I, you know, it was unbelievable, but I somehow found it. 
And so the script got sent to Tom at like 5.30 in the afternoon. And Tom told me the story. He said he picked it up and he just like opened it up to the middle. And there was a Margaret Dumont joke. Margaret Dumont was a foil in the Marx Brothers show, right. comedies. And he, he opened the page and he saw the Margaret Dumont joke and went, this is the one. That's awesome. And quickly called his agent. And at like 6.30 that night, I get a call at home. Tom Hanks is in. It's <laughs> a great feeling. Yeah. Wow. And we had met with Tom afterwards um, a couple of times, uh, just to sort of talk about the character and, and that sort of thing. But, um, no, the character was pretty well fleshed out. Mm -hmm. Uh, ironically, uh, for the sidekick for Tom Tuttle, they, they got John Candy who, um, had worked with Tom in Splash. Right. And the way we wrote, conceived the character, we saw Tom Tuttle as this little Weasley nerd guy, okay? <laughs> and so we met with John, and we said, you know, we're happy to talk about sort of, you know, readapting the character to sort of fit you and to sort of fit your voice. And Tom said, no, don't change the thing. It works. That's great. It works. It works just fine. And, um, yeah, Tom did our draft word for word. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Mostly such a good Tom and John, they both did our draft word for word. And, um, I know you also did some work on mannequin, which was one of my favorite movies. Um, did you, how'd that come about? Uh, we actually had some time to kill. We had turned in the pilot for this Mary Tyler Moore show and CBS was going on vacation for a couple of weeks. So we called our agent and we said, you know what? We've got a couple of weeks to kill. Um, why don't you give the Charles brothers a call and, and tell them, you know, we're available to knock out an episode for them. <laughs> And uh, the agent calls us back later in the afternoon and said, how'd you like to make 10 times the money for the same <laughs> two weeks? And we said, yeah. And he said, there's this uh, movie project called Mannequin, and they need a fast rewrite. Um, the director is a writer-director and another writer, and they recognize that it could use some help. Um, so meet with them and you know and i told them that you guys have like a window of two weeks right and so we said yeah okay and so they messengered over the script and we met with them like six o'clock that night yeah and went to work the next day how was the script on, on the script how was the script yeah when, uh, when you first great. got it <laughs> yeah. not great not great. But are you, uh, I, maybe you don't feel the same way. I mean, I gr grew up with that movie, so I probably have a different um, feeling about it than you do. Are you happy with the movie? Yeah, I look, you know what? Good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the movie. I'm happy with the, the success of the movie. Um, and, and I'm happy that my thumbprints are all over it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you but also... we, we instituted what we call a 24-second logic clock What's that when mean? we were writing Mannequin. You know, in basketball, there's a 24-second clock sure. where the, the, you know, the, the, the attacking team has 24 seconds to shoot. Right. And, um, you know, obviously when you're writing, you get certain places where, you know, you have stalled over, boy, should a character do this? And, you know, long discussions over, you know, characters' motivation and stuff like that. When we came to one of those points with the mannequin, you know, would a mannequin do this? Or would a mannequin <laughs> say this? Yeah. It's like 24 seconds, pick one and go. Right. You know, we're not going to spend all morning, you know, right. well, you know. Would she know how to drive a scooter? It's like, uh, yes, she does. Right. But that's one of the things that... Know how to drive scooters. Let's right. go. Come and, on. And that's what makes the movie work, that it's this incredibly silly uh, premise of a mannequin that comes to life who has been jumping through time, but you don't treat it like a kid's movie. You treat it like a real romance. Uh, it's like one of those great sort of 80s, you know, pop music uh, movies where we're, you know, it's Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall, and we're watching them fall in love, and we sort of forget about this silly premise, and we go with it. Yeah, no, it's fun, and there's musical numbers, and... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun movie. Yeah. Um, so you host your own podcast now, Hollywood and Levine. Um, how, are you enjoying that? How'd that come about? I, I, I love it. Well, I'm from a broadcasting background. Um, I got out of college and was uh, a top 40 disc jockey hmm. for a number of years before I became a writer. Then in my mid-30s, I became a Major League Baseball announcer. <laughs> I was an announcer for the Orioles, the Padres, and the uh, Mariners, and then hosted Dodger Talk for eight years in Los Angeles. Um, so I've always loved broadcasting, and so podcasting is a way for me to kind of keep my hand in it. Yeah. And uh, I've had a blog for 13 and a half years, and I figured, well, let's do an audio version of the blog. And it's kind of humor-based, but I interview guests like you, and um, I give writing tips. Uh, I do different stunts. I had never done a stand-up comedy, and I decided for the sake of the podcast one week that I would do an open mic night and record it and play it back however it wow. went. Wow, brave um, move. Yeah, well, y you know, it, it was, but I, I kind of, you know, inspired by early David Letterman shows. Yeah. You know, to try stunts. I've put uh, actors together and have done readings of uh, failed pilots of ours. Yeah, uh, that's I great. I did a, a one-act play on my podcast. A uh, ten-minute play, and then I stopped it and broke down my thought process on how I wrote it that way. Oh, it's so great uh, for writers. One of my favorite episodes of your podcast is when you did sort of a DVD commentary of an episode of Cheers that you wrote, and just pretended that you know the audience would be pressing play on that episode, and you just walked us through it. I, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, thanks. That was really fun. I've done that a couple of times. I did that with. Uh, 
Frasier episode that I directed as well. And it's an easy podcast because, you know, you can't edit or anything, you know. So you just turn on the mic and start the show and... 22 minutes later, a podcast is done for the week. Right. And people can just find it by looking up Hollywood and Levine on iTunes or wherever. Yeah, iTunes or um, Lipson or um, any of the, you know, the the major uh, podcast apps. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, And so then just as we finish up here, um, I asked you, as I asked all guests, to uh, to name a scene from someone else's work that you admire from a craft perspective. And you came up with Springtime for Hitler from the original (laughs) producers. So we're going to play that going out. Um, Before we do, I just want to I want to ask why, you know, that scene speaks to you, what you like about it from a craft perspective. What are your thoughts about it? Well, first of all, um, it's fearless. I I love that about it. Uh, you know, Mel Brooks wrote it, and you know, it was it was fearless. There's a great line from Larry Gelbart says, "If you write something funny and it it offends nobody, go back and start over." Hmm. Um, but I I love that about it, and I also love the fact that it's taken seriously that. The actors who are actually performing the number don't realize how absurd it is. They don't realize how inappropriate it is. They are doing it absolutely straight. They are giving it their all as if they were doing the opening number from Oklahoma. <laughs> right. And, uh, and to me, that's part of the fun. And also... The, the fun is the reaction from the audience. And all too often, again, comedy writers are so concerned with punchlines and one-liners. And so much of comedy is timing and reactions, reaction shots from characters. And to me, the biggest laughs in that entire sequence are when they cut to the audience that are all just sitting there gobsmacked. Uh, it's it's a, a, a brilliant scene. It's just so audacious. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing where, ah, that was what, like 1967, something like that? That's 50 mm-hmm. years old, right. that, that scene. And I bet you when you play it that your listeners are going to laugh. Awesome. Ken, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Germany was having trouble. What a sad, sad story. Needed a new leader to restore its former glory. Where, oh, where was he? Where could that man be? We looked around and then we found the man for you and me. And now it's springtime for Hitler and Germany.
born in Dusseldorf, and that is why they call me Rolf. Don't be stupid, be a smarty. Come and join the Nazi party. And that was Ken Levine. That was awesome. Always so fun to just think about Cheers, talk about Cheers, and getting to hear from a guy who was there uh, in the trenches, writing that show, working with those actors, um, along with all the other great shows he did. That's, man, I could do that all day. Thank you so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes. Hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at aaron.tracy at yale.edu. See you next week.